And so that was part one. Part one was identifying what is devotion and thinking about that in a wider definition. The second part here is in the context of culture. And the first aspect of culture, the American culture that Dr. Schmidt considers is that of distraction. The first challenge is distraction. In response to this challenge, he says, the church cultivates the devotional depth of reverence. A few years ago, I bought a book that was I was unable to finish reading. The book was Ship of Theseus by J.J. Abrams and Doug Dorst. This book is more than fiction. It's an experience. When you order it and, and receive one, <clears throat> items begin to fall out. Postcards, handwritten lists, Xerox pages, photographs, even a letter from somebody to somebody. <clears throat> As I try to read all of this stuff, I found myself being distracted. I'd start to read the typewritten words on the page, but then my eyes would dart to a comment over there in the margins. Sometimes that became really interesting to find myself tracing tracing uh, cursive comments written in green throughout the whole thing, book, quote-unquote book. But I couldn't enter deeply into the story or immerse myself in the lives of the characters because the way the book was constructed encouraged me to be distracted. <clears throat> now, you are not reading this book, but you are living in a digital environment that is constructed in a similar way. Neuroscientists, sociologists, computer scientists, psychologists, and communication and literary scholars are studying the effects of the digital environment upon human consciousness. Their findings are conclusive. The digital world creates a culture of distraction. There's a novelty bias built into us that rewards us for attending to information that's new. There's a pervasive design built into digital media that's always giving us something new to attend to. Think of all those notifications on your cell phone. We cultivate the skill that Marianne Wolf calls hyperattention, a heightened awareness of things that are new, drawing us to switch from one task to the, another and creating a low threshold of boredom. In other words, it takes a lot to keep us interested nowadays, doesn't it? Because we become proficient at moving from one thing to another, we find ourselves constantly distracted and having trouble engaging in a deeper, reflective thought. <coughs> Imagine you have set aside the morning to prepare a Bible study on the parables for uh, of Luke 15, for example. You sit at your computer with your notes before you, document open on the screen, but there's news playing on the internet in the background. You get a text about dinner tonight. You get a phone call. An email comes in. You get the idea. You're distracted and disappointed soon as you sit there, scrolling through pictures of plastic surgery gone bad, and you wonder, how did I get here? In 2012, research indicated that digital natives shifted among input from various devices 27 times in one hour. Today, it's probably more. Our use of digitally mediated culture forms us for lives of distraction. But God calls us to lives of devotion. Devotion takes us from a rapid movement among many things to a deeper reverence for one thing 
a teaching of the faith. From such deep reverence flows contemplative and active experiences in the world. Unfortunately, concerns over digital media and distraction can sometimes be interpreted as resistance to all of technology. Some might think that we cannot have a devotional life in a digitally mediated environment, but that's not the case. Sure, we live in a digitally mediated culture, but it's not a matter of moving away from digital media, but rather of being intentional about its use. Digital media can, in fact, be helpful for cultivating a devotional life. In order for that to happen, our concern should be on cultivating the deep reverence of devotion. <coughs> for an example, I have a friend who is suffering from cancer. These past few years, I've begun to devote myself to care for the suffering. In this devotion, digital technology has been useful. CaringBridge, one word, is a social media platform that enables me to access updates on my friend's health at any time and at any place. I can be on the road and yet be up to date with what is happening in her treatment. I can share my thoughts with her or with the community that surrounds her. So in that sense, it can be useful. But one time I was watching TV, and when I became distracted with my show coming back on after a commercial, I quickly finished my post with the words, praying for you, and went back to watching TV. Now, if I had been with her in person, I would not have done that. These, uh, the ease of access through the app and the cultivation of hyper-attention rather than devotional reflection led me away from an opportunity to connect with her and those around her. Scholar Christine Rosen calls this click here empathy. <coughs> Acts of charity are momentary experiences. Ironically, we're beginning to find them added on to other experiences as a distraction. So when you purchase dog food at PetSmart, you have a moment at the checkout where you can make a donation to a pet rescue center or purchase a stuffed animal for a child suffering from cancer. These actions, while praiseworthy and good, have more in common with like a spontaneous purchase than they do with the deep reverence of devotion. Rather than draw us deeper into the relational experiences of devotion, they propel us onward from a random act of kindness to the routine of making a purchase. As Rosen notes, the media platforms in which we communicate are built for speed, not slow processing. They favor immediacy, not the processing of complex emotion or the experience of faithful reflection. When you think of the complex ways in which Christians respond to the news of the birth of a child with Down syndrome or the loss of employment due to racial discrimination, we find that the mediated environment may not be equipping us to deal with such issues through faithful contemplation. As Rosen writes, going to a homeless shelter or other charity organization and spending time face to face, talking with and helping the people who stay there is a way of practicing empathy that no amount of Facebook likes or retweets can ever offer us. In the case of my friend, to live in a culture of distraction means that I can be informed about her care as I watch TV and post a good response. To cultivate the death, depth of devotion, however, is to be formed and transformed in a deeper way, perhaps by visiting her in the hospital, adjusting her pillow, and sitting down to talk. 
through active and internal contemplative practices, I slowly learn what it means to be devoted to caring for those who are sick. <clears throat> In a culture of distraction, where our attention is diverted among many possible experiences, devotion cultivates a deep reverence for the things of God. It focuses our attention on a teaching of the faith and develops a way of life that flows out of that teaching. Devotion calls us into deep relationship with God and the way he has ordered life in this world. Now, cultivating that is one way for the church to respond to the challenge of distraction. Okay, now disenchantment. The second challenge is disenchantment. In response to this challenge, the church cultivates the scriptural imaginary so that God's people experience devotional discovery in a disenchanted world. So, not imaginary scripture, but imagine, imagination that's based on the scripture. So, you'll see what he means. To describe disenchantment, I'd like to consider the painting Root of Jesse by Steve Hawley. H-A-W-L-E-Y. Uh, you can find it on a simple Google search. Root of Jesse painting by Steve Hawley. H-A-W-L-E-Y. Uh, I found it immediately. Uh, it might help really to uh, pull that up as you listen to this. You may want to pause it and find it and come back to this point. We're at 9 minutes 36 seconds. Now, at first glance, Holly's painting looks like a still life. The viewer sees colorful fruit on a black table. Upon further reflection, however, the painting begins to play with your imagination. Holly has created a sharp contrast between the foreground and the background. The foreground is painted realistically. <coughs> you see a table with a lemon, some gourds, and a cup. Holly has carefully attended to detail. The table is painted so realistically you can see the reflection of the lemon and the gourds on the black enamel of the table. In the background, however, you have an abstraction. The crucifixion of Jesus is painted on a piece of paper and fixed to the wall. The crucifixion is formed with bold lines and thick brush strokes. You cannot make out the face of Jesus. The only realistic thing about the background is the masking tape holding the picture of Jesus to the wall. And one small detail we can see the experience of disenchantment. The masking tape suggests religion is movable, not permanent. It is something abstract and tortured that you can put up or take down, and its presence or removal doesn't change what is realistic and sitting on the table. This represents one way of thinking about disenchantment. The world exists and can be known apart from God. <coughs> Theoretically, disenchantment is understood as part of the secular project. In other words, in the theory of ideas, in the world of ideas and, and philosophy. Okay, Secularism grounds our meaning, he says, in the material world, in our experience of that world, without any recourse or reference to God. According to Charles Taylor, in a secular age, this means that God is no longer the ground of being. The world does not proceed from him, it does not exist in him, it does not lead to him, in this view. God is an option as you live in the world. So when we look out upon our secular world, it is disenchanted, distant from God. Religious belief becomes something people may do on Sundays and then spend the rest of the week living in a world that is separated from spiritual forces or from the working and will of its creator. 
That's what disenchantment looks like in a painting. What about it in practice? Last year I watched as a young girl was introduced to a disenchanted world. I was at a children's birthday party in my family, where ironically, decorations displayed the enchanted world of Disney. The adults had gathered in a semicircle in the living room while their children ran around. Annabelle was sitting in the center of the circle, playing with some magnets. She was putting them together and then pulling them apart. Obviously, she was intrigued by these magnets, the world of magnets. Her mother decided to use this occasion to lead Annabelle into critical inquiry about the material world. She asked her, Belle, do you know why those magnets go together? Belle, without looking up, simply said, because Jesus wants them to. Her mother looked at us and, with a sigh of exasperation, said, Ah, oh, that's what I get for sending her to VBS. Her mother, a non-Christian, had just been telling us how she sent Annabelle to a neighborhood church for vacation Bible school. It's free daycare, she said. I can drop Bill off at the church down the street. I've got an entire morning to myself. Free me time. Now, however, she was reconsidering what she had done. Bell's Christocentric interpretation of the laws of magnetic attraction disturbed her. As she told us, Now I see how it works for a week of free me time. I'm going to have to pay for a lifetime of therapy. Why therapy? Because as a non-Christian, she was going to need to disabuse Bell of the notion that Jesus was ruling over all things and intimately involved in the experiences of this world. In Annabelle's world, Jesus was not an abstraction. He was real and present, and his hand intimately involved in all things. Even the laws of magnetic attraction were somehow connected to Jesus. Her mother wanted to raise Bell in a disenchanted world, but the church had already begun its work of developing a scriptural imaginary for Bell. I'm pretty sure that at VBS now, Bell didn't learn that Jesus causes magnets to hold together. That specific teaching is not found in very many VBS curricula. But the church had begun to do the devotional work of cultivating within Bell a scriptural imaginary. The stories of scripture, the images of the faith, the songs and activities and testimonies of Jesus risen from the dead and active in the world had been deposited in her imagination. This nascent scriptural imaginary shaped what she saw in the world. She lived in a world close to and penetrated by Jesus, and therefore understood Jesus to be holding together all things. I would as, add as your pastor, it's Ephesians chapter 1. Um, God has submitted all things to Christ. He has made, made everything through Christ, and all things are in submission to him. Dr. Schmidt continues, The point of the story is simple. We live in a culture of disenchantment. For many people, God seems distant from the world. How does the church respond to this challenge? Well, it can cultivate a practice of devotion that fill our, fills our minds with scriptural imaginary, so that like Bell, we do discover God alive and active in his world. God is not a figment of our imagination. He's real. He's revealed himself through his word and his work in the world. <clears throat> Barbara Brown Taylor suggests there's a difference between saying God is the property of our imaginations and confessing that imaginations are the property of God. You see that 
Jesus Christ has reclaimed our imagination for God. So although God is not a figment of our imagination, God does use his word to shape our imaginations. And that scriptural imaginary helps us see things differently. This is what I mean by devotional discovery. As we meditate on his word, God shapes our imagination and uses this sacred imagination to shape what we see in the world so that we experience a devotional discovery of his word. Jesus teaches his disciples, for example, to look on a man born blind and see an occasion for God's glory. John chapter 9. It's uh, I'll add my own commentary. In, in Latin, it's the Opus Dei. He said this man was born blind to show the work of God. Okay? And in Latin, that's Opus Dei. Uh, so, like somebody's magnum opus, their greatest work, this is the work of God. Uh, and it's a great mystery, but it's what it says. Also here, Dr. Schmidt cites Acts chapter 7. Luke looks at Stephen's stoning and sees a revolution, revelation of the rule of Christ. Uh, St. Paul looks at the suffering of his ministry and sees treasure in jars of clay, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> so we may enter into poetry and prose, into the parables and proverbs of Scripture, and find that they change our view of the world. Living in a world of disenchantment, devotion fills our minds with the things of God, so that we suddenly discover God is alive and active in the world. For a moment, let's return to the painting, Root of Jesse by Steve Hawley. Upon first glance, the painting presents us with a disenchanted world. The realistic foreground of the table is separated from the abstract figure of Christ crucified in the background, held up by masking tape on a wall. If you look closely, however, you will notice one detail depicts what I'm calling devotional discovery. The torso of the crucified Christ is near the center of the painting. From his side, bright red blood pours forth on the left of the painting. When your eye follows the blood, you see it flows from the painting that's mass taped to the wall into the cup on the table, whose inside is painted a similar red. We discovered that this realistic world, which we thought was disenchanted, is one that is penetrated by the gracious work of God. The cup on the table begins to look like a chalice inviting us to taste and see the Lord is good. Perhaps the painting of the crucifixion is abstract, not because it is not real, but because God himself is a mystery beyond our comprehension. All that we can ever know is what he has revealed. And so when we see Jesus dying on the cross, suddenly we discover Christ's divine suffering shapes our experience of the world. Ordinary life is penetrated in an extraordinary way. <clears throat> Two years ago, in a sectional at a theological meeting at the seminary, I explored the way in which Martin Luther used the stories of Scripture in his preaching, particularly his use of character. Luther had a way of meditating on a text and developing his characters. For example, he would enter into the imagination of Peter, pose thoughts that Peter might have had, ask questions, offer answers, carry on a conversation with Jesus, inhabit these characters and bring them to life. What Luther was doing in preaching was developing a scriptural imaginary. He was populating our imagination with people who offered us examples of God at work in the ordinary complexity of human experience. 
These characters then live on the edges of our imagination and offer us possibilities for seeing God at work in the world. <coughs> Reading the scriptures, developing a scriptural imaginary, shapes how we see God at work in the world. That is what it looks like in preaching. But what about in life? Dr. Francis Young was the Edward Cadbury Professor of Theology at the University of Birmingham. You may be familiar with her scholarly work in the early church, the making of the creeds and biblical exegesis and the formation of Christian culture, but you may not be familiar with her more personal story entitled Arthur's Call, A Journey of Faith in the Face of Severe Learning Disabilities. It is her memoir of what it is like to be the mother of a child with severe mental and physical disabilities. Although you might be familiar with her scholarly work, but not her memoir, the two really belong together. When Young was working on her PhD at Cambridge, she gave birth to Arthur, and when she had trouble breastfeeding, she began to discover his disabilities. He would never be independent. He wouldn't walk. He was limited in speech. He suffered from profound mental and physical disabilities. This means that during her time as a scholar, an author, university professor, department chair, dean of the faculty, pro vice chancellor of the university, she also had been a mother caring for her son with severe learning disabilities. She did this for 45 years. As Young describes it, her husband kept her grounded, so to speak. He was a scientist and not a believer. He taught her to view things through a scientific lens. Science said this child was an anomaly, a random mismatch of genetic material. Odds are it would not happen again for her, and it didn't, as the other two children proved. So her husband protected her from some imaginary Christian consolation, he thought, from a sentimental way of approaching his, this situation. He taught her to see and live with the reality of the world. As she records his advice, she says, Accidents happen, honey. You just have to make the best of it. Acceptance of the situation. Courage in coping with it. Getting the maximum human value out of this is all that matters. But her vocation as a theologian and scholar of the Bible, her meditation on scriptural texts raised different questions and ultimately caused her to see things in a different way. For Young, if Arthur was just an accident, a random mismatch of genetic material, well, that's one thing. But if this child is a gift of God, as the Lord says, that was another. So she says Christianity led her into ever deeper agonies over the state of the world, questions and difficulties which the non-believer never has to face. For Young, this was not just about seeing the reality of the world and responding accordingly. It was about discovering the reality of God and the reality of suffering in this world and responding in faith. Young's memoir and her book, Brokenness and Blessing, offer a glimpse into how God works through the scriptural imaginary to bring about devotional discovery for her. In the book, <clears throat> she meditates on the story of Jacob wrestling the angel of God. She begins by looking at the story through the eyes of modern exegesis or scriptural interpretation. She records how it's considered a strange interweaving of animistic stories about river gods that prevent people from crossing a river, stories about ghosts that inhabit the night, and etiological narratives giving origin to food taboos 
and the naming of rivers and people. That at least is the skeptical viewpoint. Then she contrasts the detached and modern analytical reading of the text with Wrestling Jacob, the devotional hymn of Charles Wesley. Wesley's pre-modern contemplation offers a different way of experiencing the text. Rather than analyze and explain, Wesley meditates. <coughs> so Young also decides to meditate on the text of Jacob wrestling with the angel, to break bread with the church fathers, and to learn how they would chew on this story. Through such meditation, she offers a call to mortal struggle, a journey to Christ, ultimately a confession of the crushing limitations of being human in the presence of the divine. At the end of her chapter, she raises her eyes from the text to look on the world and offers a personal reflection on her life as a biblical scholar and the mother of a son with profound disabilities. She is no longer standing outside the scriptures reflecting on the meaning, but rather inside the world created by the scriptures and governed by their God. She is there alongside Jacob and alongside her son, standing before God, an empty vessel being filled with God's suffering love. As she writes, I stand alongside him as a vulnerable creature, disabled and mortal, knowing my creaturely limitations and my lack of knowledge, especially of God, yet again and again, I find myself lamed and blessed. In the end, her journey through the wilderness led her to the cross as the place to meet God. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, in her poem, Aurora Lay, once said that earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush is a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. Meditating on the scriptures, filling one's mind with its poetry and prose, cultivates a way of seeing the world. And I would add, as your pastor, he's talking about providence, God's providence in the world now. We're not saying that you can understand God's nature through nature, but you can see God's hand and providence in the world. So, so the miracles recorded in the Bible are special because they're supernatural, okay? But he's talking about now <clears throat> seeing God's work and care for us in, in this created world. All right. Dr. Schmidt uh, closes this section this way. With the scriptural imaginary, we are led into moments of discovery so that whether one spends a lifetime caring for a child with disabilities or one is just sitting for a moment on the floor watching a child play with magnets, there is a reason to take off your shoes. In a culture of disenchantment, devotion builds our scriptural imaginary that we might discover God present and active in our world. All right. The last section is about disillusionment. I think we're all experiencing plenty of disillusionment in the year 2020. And here it is already, October of that fateful year, 2020. So the third challenge, disillusionment. In response to this challenge, the church develops devotional disciplines so that in a culture of disillusionment, God's people experience hope. Since the time of Augustine's confessions, people have mapped the interior spaces of their faith experience 
through spiritual autobiography. These autobiographies offer us conversion narratives telling how God has brought people to faith and, and also deconversion narratives telling how people have fallen away from the faith. Recently, however, another type of narrative has become popular, narratives of disillusionment. These are autobiographical reflections of Christians who are falling away from faith. These stories are not of people who have fallen away, but of people who are falling away. In radical honesty, they explore both their doubts and their desires to hold on. Historically considered, disillusionment is not new to the church. The church has always had conversations such as these, and these conversations have given us language to use when we need to put into words that which we would rather not say. The dark night of the soul, tentatio, Latin for suffering, deus absconditus, the God who is unknown, who you can't find, or the apophatic way, the way of uh, fear and sorrow. Although narratives of disillusionment are not new to the church, they have recently become popular. Writers who once assured us that God was present to the world are now telling us that they think this might all be an illusion and that they're walking away. <coughs> These books win awards and top bestseller lists. The experience of falling away from faith has popular appeal, and that should give us pause. In popular culture, disillusionment resonates with readers. I want to listen in on that conversation. Why? Because it's not merely a publishing trend. It's a reflection of what some in our churches are experiencing now. We have all heard the numbers. In the Western world, Christianity is declining. News outlets frequently update the church with the stats. Whether one hears reports from the Pew Research Center or Gallup, Christianity is